Dr. Jane Park um, is author of a fabulous book called Yellow Future Oriental Style in, uh, in, in Hollywood cinema. I'm just reading behind me there. I thought it was like American cinema, Hollywood. Jane, how are you doing? I'm all right. How are you, Paul? Sorry for fluffing your subtitle. Um, <laughs> it was a, it's such a great book. Um, we, we met shortly after it was published and we talked a lot about it then, but, um, and it was, I, I think it was my, was it 2010 it came out? I think yes, it was in a decade. Yeah, actually. it was my favorite book of 2010 and oh, I still okay. refer to it now. It taught me a, a, a lot about the kind of, the crossover in, 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 in aesthetics, and in, in styles between um, um, Hollywood action cinema and Hong Kong action cinema. Um, I mean, would you, um, do you, do you, so your argument, I mean, your argument's complex. Can you sum up that argument in just a, a bite size for, for people who haven't read the book? Sure. Um, it's been a while. So um, the book, the book really looks at um, the, at the time, the increasing visibility and popularity of um, East Asian aesthetics and actors um, in mainstream Hollywood genre films. So I really focused on the, the book is um, <laughs> bookended by Blade Runner from 1982. And then it ends with the original Matrix, which is now being remade um, in 1999. So what I do is I then sort of look at other other films between those those years, like I I looked at the Karate Kid, um, which is also, as you know, <laughs> has had an up, remade in know, many ways. Yeah. I hope we can talk about Cobra Kai. Oh yeah. Um, and the Rush Hour movies. I think I had a little bit about Kill Bill Volume One and um, Ghost Dog, that fabulous you know mm -hmm. drama film with Forrest Whitaker. So. I'd honestly, when I was writing the book, it was really, I don't know if I told you this, Paul, but when I got the reader's reports back, so for those of you who are listening who don't know, when you write an academic book, it gets sent out to um, anonymous readers in your field and they uh, give you like a sort of, you know, they give you, get back a report and say that you should publish this or whatever. But one of the comments that I got, people were like, this is a fantastic um, study of Asian masculinities. And I was like, I hadn't even thought about that that's what I was doing. <laughs> because I was just writing about movies that I really loved and that where I really saw this pattern illuminated, right? That mm -hmm. kind of spectacular um, East Asian bodies as aesthetics, like as spectacle, and also in the background, in the mise-en-scene. So you look at lots of people have written about this, but um you know the ways that blade runner and now you know the the remake that came out recently i imagine it was the same thing we'll see in dune you know but so many science fiction films um in the west have as their backdrop for a dystopic future a very kind of um multicultural asian mm -hmm. dominant sort of look so that's something else i was looking at in this um in this book and what i tried to do i basically used a cultural studies approach which i also didn't know i was doing i was i thought i was just doing close readings um of these films and contextualizing them within um you know things like interviews with the directors and you know what was happening in the united states at the time in terms of how asian americans were being perceived you know and really you're looking from the 80s to the beginning of this century 
or the end of the last century, which seems like a really long time ago now, um, you know, you're looking at the rise of quote unquote Asia first with Japan and then after um, the Asian economic recession, you know, you see um, China rising and I didn't cover it in my book, but you know, then India with Bollywood and, And, you know, and then in the 2000s, it's been Korea. So, you know, um, it's really been about Hollywood and K-pop. And mm-hmm. um, so, yeah, I, that was a long answer to your question. I hope yeah, that, no, that, that that's great. I, 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 one of the things that I that really stuck with me was the was the argument that in terms of um, kind of Hollywood motifs and aesthetics, that that that. Asia generally, but maybe China specifically, would stand for the most ancient and timeless and mystical, but also the technological future. So yes. you look at you look at the the character in in Blade Runner who who makes the eyes. You know the guy who who is right. King, I only make the eyes. I only make that. And um, and it's like there's all, there's that that connection that's kind of over determined by first of all structures of Orientalism, like it's it's the ancient and timeless and mystical, but also then by the move uh, post World War Two for for say Japan to redefine itself as as a tech um, world, and that that comes through in so many times in so many ways, and you see the characters who represent either the ancient and timeless or the most futuristic. Exactly. It's interesting. Do you think that's still the case now? Do we still see that? Um, I think so. Yeah, I actually think that a lot of the tropes and the patterns that I identified in that time period, we've just seen um, coming to the foreground even more, you know, and getting naturalized even further. So I had been talking, I mean, one of the things, I guess, um, that speaks to martial arts studies is really, you know, um, during the period that I was looking at is when with the crossover of so many Hong Kong actors and directors and so on to the United States and that following the popularity of anime, right? So you have a, you have a growing audience, a fan base in the West, mm-hmm. um, interested in, um, just lost my train of thought, but basically these um, martial arts and anime and kind of this yeah. extreme Asia thing. Um, and, uh, I'm so sorry. It's well, it's okay because like, we were just we were talking about whether you think that it's still relevant, whether it's still growing, or whether it's because because yeah. in many ways, in many ways, the the kind of the action and the martial arts aesthetic in films has become it's normal often disconnected. Hmm? Yeah, no, no, that's what I was going to say. Actually, sorry, I I remembered what I was going to say is that during that time, you really see things like wire food becoming part of the Hollywood industry. Like that's how action is shot. Before yeah. that you compare people like, you know, Stallone or Schwarzenegger, they weren't fighting in the ways that we now sort of see as fighting, fight sequences, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So I was really interested in that. So, I mean, what do you think, Paul? Do you feel like, do you feel like, um, so, you know, this kind of techno-oriental style that I was talking about is, you see that now? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I don't, um, get as much well maybe i just don't have as much inclination i have said don't get enough as many opportunities to watch films but maybe i just don't want to watch as many films because now with you know we've i've had next netflix for the last couple of years and you look at the the, the offerings on netflix and they seem like really simplified i mean the action choreography the fight choreography is, is often really wonderful and as good as as any as any hong kong choreography ever was but the orientalism is just straightforward 
and it's just simplistic and it's really childish and maybe it's the childishness that I can't cope with and that that turns me off I try to I start watching series or seasons and box set type things and just go oh this is so juvenile I can't maybe I'm like, too well, old <laughs> I'm curious like, I, I'm wondering what you're watching like what do you mean the 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 orientalism that's really so like over the top what are some examples well the, let me try and think if I, I'm trying vision, vision uh, visualizing myself scrolling endlessly through Netflix okay. recommendations um, those series that was like Marco Polo. It's, a, it's almost like everything oh, since yeah, everything yeah. since the Great Wall. You know that film. Everything oh, since yeah. then seems to have taken the worst aspects of that and right. distilled it into ever more regurgitations of the same. But I'm simplifying because, as I say, I have no stomach for these films anymore and this style of of. of I totally of, get it. I mean, that's probably why I haven't written a sequel to it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It just got more simple. It just got simplified. Or or it just got more maybe cartoonish is another yes. word for it. Or just it it you know, it's also become pure spectacle. I think mm. that's it for me. I think a lot of cinema, this kind this genre has become pure spectacle. Yeah. And you just I just get bored, like what's the plot? It's either too spectacular and there's no plot and no character development or it's just too much for me. Like, I mean, I love time travel movies, you know, I'm into science fiction, but now, I mean, you can't watch a film in, the, in that genre that doesn't have time loops and multiple yeah. narratives and characters. So, um, yeah. but perhaps that just reflects the interesting age that we're living in. Yeah. Like we're living in Groundhog Day, you know, with the pandemic. <laughs> well, yeah. so. This is the thing, I mean, even with um, stuff that's massively unexpected, Unexpectedly popular, like we, like Cobra Kai, we talked about. So that the yeah. first, you know, episode one, season one, the first three episodes, four episodes, they're a delight. They're a nostalgic, playful, oh hilarious, messing around with things that were left dangling, and we didn't even know there were there were threads left dangling in the in the film. And then yeah. and then by season two, it's like you know, I was watching it with my uh, wife and my daughter. And me and my daughter, we stuck with it. We loved it. But my wife's like, oh, this is just now. Now it's just a kind of childish teen program yeah. where, where people are going through the same dramas that, that they went through in 1983 or 1984, whenever it was. And so she just lost interest because that whole, there's the, the something marvellous about bringing it back to life was lost. And it became a simplified teen soap opera again really i guess yeah absolutely and kind of like that sort of and i'm i'm showing my age here because i'm gen x but that kind of snowflake millennial thing you know <laughs> that um i got that vibe in the second season as well and of course i'm identifying <laughs> i don't know if i should say this like i totally identify with william zapka right like uh, the guy who's, you know, Johnny from Cobra Kai. I thought the actor was amazing. Um, I mean, Ralph Macho was fine, but like I, um, I love all underdog narratives. So, you know, for this guy, he's like, his whole life was ruined after the <laughs> tournament. You know, like to go back and revisit those scenes from the Karate yeah. Kid from his perspective. That was gold. I loved that. Uh. Um, there, I wanted to ask you though, because you, you probably didn't watch, watch, see this thing, but I'm really interested in how, um, well, given the fact that I wrote, you know, Yellow Future, and like, I'm always looking at how Asian characters are represented or not or whatever. Mm. So 
there, I found it so fascinating that in Cobra Kai first season, we get introduced to, you know, the popular crowd. Mm. And the guy who's leading the popular crowd is this Asian American guy. <laughs> and I was like, as I was watching it, I thought, I know this guy from somewhere. And his name is Joseph Sal. He's Korean American. So okay. even before I knew he was a Korean American, I was like, hmm. I bet that's capitalizing on how, you know, Korean culture and K-pop is so cool now. So now Asian guys are cool mm. via K-pop, right? Like that's a whole, people have written about how Korean masculinity, and mm -hmm. I see it in my students. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, but what's really interesting to me is he starts out, so he's basically the new Johnny, you know, in our age. Mm -hmm. and, he, and then he, I don't want to give it away to people who haven't watched it, but then like, you know, he's dating um, what's his face, his daughter, you yeah, know, LaRusso's uh, daughter, yeah. LaRusso's daughter. And, and he turns out to be a real jerk, but there's this awesome scene where LaRusso invites this kid whose name yeah. I'm forgetting to dinner. And it's so, it's like they're making fun of Orientalism, it's right? Best, and, isn't but, it? It's so funny. But there's so many like loops to that. Anyway, but so he invites him and he's like, all decked out in some sushi chef outfit. And he's like, oh, of course you like sashimi. And the guy's like, no, I don't like fish. And then his daughter's like, no, you like fish sticks. So they have to like make him these clothes of fish sticks. Yeah. This is so American. Yeah. But the thing, and then like, and then when Daniel LaRusso asks him, so you know where you're, where are you from or where are your parents from? Where are your parents from? He goes, uh, Irvine, I guess. Irvine. <laughs> and I was like, that is the best resist. This is like such a beautiful scene of Asian American resistance to being orientalized, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then, but then that character totally falls away and, you know, he's sort of relegated to background. So it is interesting that even though the series has this amazing critique of Orientalism, I mean, you could argue that it reproduces it as well, right? Because like in the yeah. end, everybody who is doing stuff is... Well, I mean, I thought that, I thought, hang on a minute, because, I mean, I, I, I totally identified with Johnny. I think that was, that was the thing, that was the thing that they really mined the reserves of. Like, Cobra Kai were cool, right? They were, they were badass, as they say all the way through. And, and we all knew that, but th because, because bad guys, they often are badass, you know, like, like you know, Spike in Buffy, he's like, he's cool, and, uh, and he's attractive in that. Um, but I liked the way that they played because at first I thought, oh no, um, you know, Daniel LaRusso is the most, he's like, he's like the archetypal Western sort of hippie who really thinks that he's, 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 te so he's trying to teach the, 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 the wisdom and also the culinary delights of Okinawa to exactly. his age. He, he, but then, but then. But then when, 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 he does, when he does his advert, when he decides he's setting up Miyagi-Do again, and he does an advert online, and, yeah. and he's, in the, he's at work, and the guy goes, oh, by the way, I don't think, it's, yeah, I don't think you're guilty of cultural appropriation. And he gets his phone, and he goes, what? <laughs> like, what is this? And it gets dismissed. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there were some really funny, funny moments. Um, mm. the, but I agree. I mean, the second season, it, I just kind of lost interest as well. Um, I, I do think they did a really good job sort of bringing out the nostalgia, the nostalgic factors in the first season, though. I mean, I enjoyed that. Yeah, I, I, I think that, what do I think? I mean, I think, I think a lot of things about it. I do think that they, they re, recouped some of the nostalgic kind of vibe towards the end. The very last scene, oh, 
<laughs> I shouldn't really spoil it for anyone, but the very last scene of the of the very last episode of the second season, they they pre- they're going to bring some all back, other aspects, yes, which are going wait. to be re replayed. Yeah. yeah, there's been a lot of a lot of interest in the so on my uh, in my bubble in my online uh, hall of mirrors, my echo chamber, a lot of the martial artists um, who who I am in com- contact with, they love that. I mean they. <laughs> they are absolutely thrilled by Cobra Kai, like really often serious, sober, older martial artists, like really respectable. They want to talk about it and they, you know, they want to write about it and, and reflect on it. It's, wow. it's, it's interesting it's the way that it taps a martial arts nerve as well. It does. Uh, well, because it's also, you can see there's a nostalgia for when, and you know this history so much better than I, like I've wanted, I've re- like, not, not that I have any time because our teaching has workload is tripled, that's a whole nother neoliberal mm. corporate university thing. But if I had time, I really want to learn more about the history of, um, uh, you know, martial arts centers opening up in the US and elsewhere. You know, you, you probably have written about this and I don't remember, but like, and so it's really in the 80s that karate becomes such a such a cool normalized thing, right? For all the, just like the Karate Kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a friend of mine who, um, her family was one of the first um, group of Korean immigrants to move to come to the United States to Hawaii. It turns out that her uncle—I'm forgetting his name—but he was a really, really famous Taekwondo. I've been meaning to tell you this. I'll find the name later. But Taekwondo instructor—I think he opened up the first Taekwondo um, studio yeah. and um, I think trained Elvis Presley or something. Okay. So yeah. So I mean, so it's interesting that kind of you know, um, that nostalgia for a kind of Asian, a kind of Asian cultural form that's become such a, such an integral part of, you know, American and Western masculinity, you know, yeah. culture. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I haven't written about the, the actual history of, of, of clubs and schools opening in, in any country, but I, I, but I know people who have. And um, I mean, it, Hawaii was always a hotbed. It was always one of the first, the, the first locations um for anything but it um you know people like joseph Sventh and, and and tom green and people have done these histories of, of, of clubs opening and the movement of, of these styles around but what's interesting is uh, so a colleague uh, a friend of mine called mike malaski who teaches in uh, wasada university in tokyo he mm-hmm. he looked he's done a study of phone books adverts to look for martial arts clubs in 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 three big cities around the u.s and it really is the 1980s where it, it becomes a, a definite, definitive thing. And they start to use terms like martial arts because okay. before that it would be different styles and there'd be the chopstick writing and, and all, but it's, it's really quite late. It's, it's so these, these things like the, like the Karate Kid, they are happening at the time that, precisely at the time this is becoming normalized and they are the things that are normalizing it and, and really multiplying the effects of, of what was already taking place. So we tend to think that, we think of the Karate Kid as belated, don't we? Like it's like, oh, but it really happened in the 70s. But actually the cinematic happened in the 70s, as we know, it was like boom, yes. boom, boom, fighting. But it took a long time for actual practice to, to, to magnify to the extent that the film suggests that it already existed. Right. And for it to infiltrate among youth, right? Because it, it becomes a kind of, it becomes a thing for kids yeah. to train, right? Um, yeah, and then it becomes childish. Um, which yes, is and you get to see, 
Yeah, I mean, I was going to write about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in my book back in the day, you know, but yeah, that kind of the way, and that, and, and it goes all the way to Marco Polo, like you said, and where we are now, maybe. Um, uh, there's a, this is a random, I should talk about what I'm working on now, but anyway, but there's a, I had to, I just remembered something I wanted to tell you. So, you know, I moved to Australia in 2008, and one of the martial arts things I learned is that they have this martial art here called Zendo Kai. Oh, yeah. And I remember when I, do you know about this? And they totally made it up. Some, <laughs> <laughs> I, it would be such a fun thing to investigate, you know, like some guy in the 80s came up with this yeah. idea of Zendo Kai and then all these white Australian kids started taking Zendo There's Kai. a lot of it about. There's a, there's a, there's a lot of it. <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's, I mean, it, it's not just, it's not just, um, you know, whatever ethnicity Australians, it's, if, you know, people make up new, I mean, you know, what, what does Master Ken teach? Emeridote? You know, that, that happens, that happens regularly. I mean, the, the, the Chinese do it regularly with things like, things that they can control, like Mulan Chuan. Well, you wanted to talk about Mulan as well, didn't you? So, oh. so, so according to um, an anthropologist called Adam Frank, when, when the, when the um, not the much the Qigong, the Falun Gong controversy was taking place in, in China and they were arresting all these Falun Gong practitioners, they mm. often, they would replace them. They'd bus in martial artists to do Tai Chi in the park. And that's oh. where Mulan Chuan became so popular because it was kind of endorsed by the state and they invented a thousand year history for it. But really, it was just sort of invented there and then to look beautiful and to appeal to American tourists. There um, you go. Oh. And that's, this brings us to Mulan and it's, it's many, incarnations yeah. <laughs> you, re you recently took some time to 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 seek out Mulan didn't you what did you think about the new Mulan I didn't actively seek it out everybody kept telling me to watch it and then a very good friend of mine who works in the film industry um he cut you know was like hey I'm gonna watch it I'm gonna stream it at home you want to come and, and join us so um I mean it's been completely trashed I think uh you know in the U.S. and in China from what I've read um so there are all the sort of political um, things that happened with the lead actress um, supporting the Chinese police, you know. Mm. Um, but yeah, the, the film itself, uh, I'm not, this is not my genre. I don't like musicals very much. I mean, I watched the original Mulan, but, um, and I know that this is a thing that's happening where um, they're bringing back Disney films, but in live action, and they usually keep the musical aspects. But they didn't keep the musical aspect in Mulan, and uh, lead actress just is extremely wooden. Every time you're watching her, it's like you can just see her trying to remember her English lines. Do you know what I mean? Right. Like, yeah. Um, the martial arts. I'm not the expert here. You are, but um, I mean, I, I just they were very short. You know, sh short sequences. Mm. Um, the CGI was pretty bad. I mean, Gong Li has an interesting kind of role that they that that's new to the remake where she plays a quote-unquote witch you know and i mean there's there's potential for some really interesting um relationship stuff you know um kind of surrogate mother daughter or doubling between her and mulan but it doesn't really happen very well mm. lots of plot holes so yeah overall it really didn't keep my interest um Okay. I don't know, but then it's, I'm not the tween audience that I suppose it was going for. I also think it didn't know what its audience was, mm. you know, in many ways. And so it's, it's, every time I watch a movie like that, I'm just like, that is so sad. You put all that money into that movie. Yeah. And it, yeah. So, I mean, 
what's the panda movie? Um, Kung Fu Panda is so yeah. much better. Okay. The Kung Fu Panda <laughs> series. Yeah, yes, yes. So that's my quick commentary on Okay. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't waste your money on subscribing that's, to Disney yeah. Plus or whatever. Just, yeah, my, my daughters were really keen for me to, to subscribe to that channel because the only way to get it in Britain was to subscribe to another channel, which I don't want, and, um, and then pay something like £18 to rent it. And I was like, is it worth it really? When I know, I know I'm going to hate it. You know? You'll hate it. I, I, I went in thinking I would hate it, but I went in with an open mind and, yeah. you know. Um, not to hate it that much. Yeah. No, exactly. I was like, but I'll give it a, you know. Um, they should just watch the original Mulan. It's so much better. Mm. So, so, what, so what, are you, um, what are you working on at the moment then? What's the... Ha! Huh. So, um... After that book came out, after Yellow Future came out, um, I really wanted to, well, this is what I was talking with you about many, many years ago when we met. Um, I wanted to kind of look at the globalization of Korean popular culture, film and TV, and particularly kind of focusing on crossover, the idea of crossovers and remakes. So the ways in which, you know, a Korean styles kind of get remade in different Asian contexts. So. I wrote a couple of things in that area. And in fact, um, one of the papers that I started writing a while ago that I really need to finish this year and just send off to a journal is looking at um, a, a, a Korean film that came out in 2001 and then has been remade many, many, many times all the way up to 2011 in Malaysia. Um, and I wanted to, it's called My Wife is a Gangster. And have you seen it, Paul? I don't think so, no. I don't okay, think so. I, it's, I, I think you might enjoy it. Does it have different titles, a different version? Mm -hmm. I don't no, think so, it doesn't ring a bell. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a comedic gangster film. Okay. It did really well when it came out in Korea. The main character is a female mob boss. Um, and Sounds like uh, it's got a lot going for it already. It does, yeah. It's it's quite good, and um, and I would be curious to hear what you think of the fighting style, uh, because, you know, there's like a really interesting mixture. I thought of that of kind of um wuxia and like hardcore Korean street fighting, um, and then so in the paper I talk about the ways in which you know those kinds of Chinese aesthetic connections get echoed in the sequels where you have. Um, sort of more like Hwagyo, the Chinese-Korean element, I say, is sort of a backdrop. And then the third sequel is actually a co-production with Hong Kong, I think. And um, I'm forgetting the name of the very famous Chinese actress who plays the lead. But anyway, so it's really interesting. And then several years later, it gets remade in Singapore and Malaysia. So I was really interested in these kinds of cross-cultural connections and divergences. So that was like kind of the area that I wanted to go into. And the book was just too unwieldy and long and life happened. So I'm still fascinated by just the idea of remakes and sequels because that is our world, right? Like we were just talking about Cobra Kai and maybe it's my age too, but I just feel like we're living in a perpetual loop of constant remaking, you know? Um, but I haven't articulated that into a project per se. Um, at the moment, um, I'm just finishing up some projects and then um, the book project as is, I've decided to just sort of center on um, film and television primarily, um, 
texts around sort of this, this figure of the transgressive Korean and Korean diasporic woman. So not a lot with martial arts, but a lot of um, violent, violent women, which I'm interested in. Okay. <laughs> Quite cathartic to watch Korean women breaking things. <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting because actually in, in my area, I was talking with a friend about this, you know, we talk about race and affect. And when you think about anger as an affect, it's in, in gender studies or feminist studies, we think of like angry African-American women or angry Latinas or angry, you know, they're always black and brown women. And Asian women, anger doesn't really show up in the Western discourse, right? Usually Asian women, it's like, we're really sad. <laughs> we're really depressed, you know? And so for me, I think I'm personally and emotionally connected. And I also just love action, right? But I love seeing Asian and Korean women totally lose their shit. I like them showing that anger because I don't see that represented in Asian diasporic contexts as much, you know? Mm -hmm. um, maybe I'm just an angry person, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, uh, th there, was, there were films like The Assassin and then, I mean, the first person that jumps to mind would be Oren Ishii in, in of course, in Bell. Yeah. I mean, she's, she sublimated that anger and turned it into something, something yeah. rather special. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But what, speaking of just quickly on remakes, um, so one of my all-time favorite films, bar none, is is the Korean fil film Old Boy, and then so, it was remade okay. by Spike Lee. Right. Um, and I thought that, it, you know. <laughs> I often find myself shouting things like at the radio or at the, and I was like shouting about to myself about how yeah. there should be legislation. <laughs> there should be certain things that you are not allowed to remake because you take one yeah. of the best films ever made. One of the most amazing films where every camera angle, every frame does something to develop the, the themes and the plot. And then Spike Lee comes along and makes it into some lame, Peculiar. I mean, if you're going to remake a film, you don't remake one of the greatest films of all time. What did you think? Did you like the Spike Lee version? No, I did not either. I, I also shout at the TV and I remember not enjoying that, but it was mitigated by the fact that I had watched the Indian remake okay. <laughs> of Old Boy, which is even worse. Uh, it's called Zinda, if you ever are in the mood for a really bad remake. If you're feeling strong, yeah. <laughs> if you're feeling strong, and there's also just horrible, it, it's just, there's like, I think there's a rape scene. It's just terrible on every level. I think there was music in it too. I think they tried to make it like a Bollywood old boy, but anyway, it did not work. Yeah. Um, for, so for, yeah, maybe that's another reason I just gave up on the remake thing, because there's just so many bad remakes <laughs> after a while. Nowadays, I, when it comes to like, you know, do you want to watch this film? See, I do this, I, I started doing this type of stuff where you do cold exposure training. So I always have cold showers now. So I'm like looking at the shower going, I'm going to get in the shower and it's going to be very, very cold. And for me, like watching a film is like that now. Go, I know this is going to be awful, but I'm going to have to do this for the sake of, I'm meant to teach film studies, you know? Yes, you have to, okay. <laughs> Are you, have you, you just lost interest in film or is it more, because I find I'm watching television a lot more. I feel like TV is a lot more interesting than film these days. Well, I think that, I mean, I teach a, a module on called film and cultural theory, but I'm very, very, very flexible in my categories. You know, I'll often look at say music videos 
or adverts because I think that that that, that what the category film is 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 probably had its day because a film can quite easily warp into a series into all different kinds of media it can it becomes games it becomes so I think that to circumscribe to think in terms of film studies is it's passe really because it it has to be a generalized media studies now doesn't it otherwise you're missing you're, you're missing the world the world goes by totally. and still fixated on you know two hour long texts absolutely i mean i think it's it's um we're living in the age of convergence like you're describing you can't talk about film as a separate category anymore um and i had another thought and i totally lost it <laughs> <laughs> TikTok. Oh, hey yeah. so oh, yeah. trump's gonna ban TikTok, but i i'm actually i'm at the point where i'm like i I half joke it, jokingly suggested to my students in a course I'm teaching on globalization mm-hmm. that, you know, in their final project, they basically have carte blanche to do whatever they want, really, that speaks to the themes of the class. They can write a traditional academic essay or they can do something creative. And I was like, they were like, what, you, what can we do that's creative? And I said, well, you know, you can do some TikTok videos if you want and then just do an analysis, you know, using the readings. But that's kind of where I'm at. Like, yeah. My own attention span is like the attention span of a TikTok video. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There is that. I mean, um, so. so with me, I think that when I was trying to articulate my interest in in martial arts and trying to conceptualize it and put it in and communicate it to the academic world, Bruce Lee films are the obvious place to start for me. But really, my interest is, has always been in the. Uh, kind of bodily experiences and the fantasy life associated with that and the attempts to put that into words so mm-hmm. so now I spend more time well, I, I spend more time training and thinking <laughs> thinking about training <laughs> but um but but also I'm interested in in I, I like to read people's I, I, I read a lot of discourse around it and and try to well which way are people thinking about these things and what tropes and, and and what figures are they using to communicate something that i intuitively feel i have a direct and mediated access to because i do it because which is a problematic con- which is a problematic proposition in its own right but with like the stuff that i've got into during lockdown which is around different forms of breathing and meditation and pranayama and and, and so yes. on, that produces certain emotional and psychological and physiological responses that I'm very interested in how people think about that. I mean, obviously it's a symptom of the pandemic, but so I'm, yeah. not really, I'm not really a film person at the moment, I think. No, that's so interesting that you say that. It's, it's really cool to reconnect because I've been getting hardcore into meditation the past three or four years. And I've every, like, I'm always like, oh, I should start, I should pick up a martial art, you know? Um, and I, I started doing Tai Chi, you know, to supplement the yoga. And so, I've kind of become a caricature of myself in a way. <laughs> if the twenty-year-old me met me now, she would laugh and laugh. You know. But um, what's it? What's it but it's coercive uh, mimeticism. Yeah, <laughs> you become what you are expected to be. Probably, maybe, perhaps. But it's also been—it's um, been a form of—I don't really like the word resistance necessarily, but it's been a, a really wonderful way to cope with the stresses of modern life and with academia and. Also to get back into our bot into my body, you know, because academic work is so cerebral and that mind body split, it's just, um, it's untenable, you know? So meditation has been fantastic. Um, I forgot to tell you, um, the last thing I published was a book, uh, not a book, <laughs> I wish, was an article on pedagogy. 
And um, I use Bruce Lee, actually, and his sort of theorization of water to mm. think about my own positionality as somebody who is kind of watery and invisible in terms of her identity here in Australia. You know, so all the ways in which being in Australia has made me question sort of identity categories and politics that I had in the United States um, and what it might feel like to be, you know, this kind of double translation. Okay, that, I'll read that. That's really interesting. I mean, the, the water thing, the Bruce Lee and the Bee Water thing was was really, it had a new existence around the Hong Kong protest, didn't it? I exactly, mean, the last yeah. Year, the start of this year. Um, it's really coming back in a big, well, it did, it came back. The, the, but I'll, I'll read, where was that one published then? It was in a journal called Interasia Cultural Studies, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, which, yeah. you know, my senior colleague Megan Morris like, was yeah. one of the founders of that group. Um, but it came out in a special issue um, last year. I can send you a copy, no worries. Okay, or, excellent. Let, let, the, let the swapping of PDFs begin. Yes, and I want, what have you been working on? Well, I finished, a, I finished a book that will be out in December and it's called okay. The Invention of Martial Arts and the subtitle is Popular Culture Between Asia and America. And I, was, I had a lot of projects and most of my research was around the discourse of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and also some stuff around representations of Chinese martial arts like Tai Chi and British media. But then the pandemic hit and lockdown hit and I had a complete, um, kind of existential crisis because jujitsu was taken away from me and I was locked in the house with my family and, and <laughs> I, I, I flailed around for a long time so at the moment I'm totally open to, to I'm just I'm thinking there's no hurry to find That's a new research project I, I need to come to terms with the loss the indefinite loss of Brazilian jiu-jitsu from my life um, but I'm, I'm just kind of open. This is part of what the podcast is about. It's, it's about like, I just want to speak to people and think and, and kind of connect with other people and see how they're coping with things. And I think yeah. the number of people who are turning to breathing, posture and, and, and meditation is, it makes sense given what's happening globally. Absolutely. Um, the symptom yeah. in the kind of Lacanian sense, um, but it's also Definitely. ideological in the sense it's coping. We have to cope somehow, don't we? So. Yeah, and I think it's just recognizing that we um, we don't have control mm. of our lives, which is a, a fact. We just forget it, you know, when we live, we plan things. And um, I've also, you know, God, my colleagues would just laugh at me. But, you know, I also started, like, reading Eckhart Tolle and Pema Chodron and um, Deepak, you know, Chopra, and, like, just thinking about how... I've, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about sort of the constructedness of time, yeah, just time, you know, and what kind of, I feel like we're living in an interest, a really interesting period. Um, and rather than freaking out, just thinking, you know, I don't know, I just suddenly thought of Gramsci's idea of interregnum, where the old hasn't, is dying but hasn't died yet and the new is yet to be born. I feel like we're entering a new epoch. So you feel a bit like that, yes. Yeah, so just kind of, I think just being grounded in your breath and, you know, being grateful for every day. I, I have a dog. I mean, that's my biggest thing. I got a puppy a few years ago. I, I think I think that my dog is the only thing keeping my family together, to be honest. He's like, a, just a, we might as well call him therapy dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. What, what breed is your dog? My dog is a chihuahua. It's no way! Really I feel like you told me this, and I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> my, 
my mine is a like we could share our dogs but um yeah yeah my, my dog is stereotypically white fluffy dog but i f i feel like we've drifted away from um <laughs> the top yeah. of the podcast so um i guess um uh should i ask so what what is next do i mean what what's the next um big project for you then what's the next big thing um so the the book the academic book i'm supposedly writing right now um is tentatively titled extreme women mm. poland a kind of play on extreme asia right yeah. yeah and then i think it's something like um korean femininities in popular culture in global popular culture so i would look at figures like sandra oh you know margaret cho um, I would read films like Cloud Atlas, and it's really a, a, a kind of examination. I guess it's like in between a star study and a, and a kind of diaspora, Asia, anger, affect, aesthetic study. So I'm totally botching that up. But, you know, okay, but at the moment, I, I just, I've got the proposal and whatever, but I'm just not that into it. So um, I did some work a while ago on Korean beauty culture and cosmetic surgery, and that never eventuated in an academic study. And so I'm sort of playing with the idea of writing it more sort of as creative nonfiction. Okay. You know, exploring my own body issues and, you know, stuff around diaspora and beauty. And I would call it very cheekily the guide to Korean beauty. <laughs> okay, that, that sounds yeah. interesting. I think I think a lot of us are thinking about writing in different in different styles and different modes of address. Yeah. You know, that makes I I, I recognise that that interest. But I think that we've we've talked for a while, so I'm gonna um, I'm gonna say thank you very much um, for taking the time to speak to me. <laughs> the conversation no went far right. Thank you, Jane. It's been uh, lovely to talk to you. Thank you, Paul. It was really nice to catch up. <laughs>